Amen. We are in week two of our study through the book of Galatians, and so I'm excited to see what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, Last week, we opened up with talking about just the power of the gospel, that there is only one gospel. There are not multiple ways to get to heaven. There is one way to get to heaven, and it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we looked at in chapter one that Paul says that there were those that desired to preach another gospel but wasn't another of the same kind, but another that was completely different. And we understood that from Galatians chapter 1, that there is one true gospel, that nothing saves apart from the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says there's only one name given among men whereby they must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. There's not many roads leading up this mountain that we're all journeying on. There's not many paths to God's heaven. There's one way. And while that may sound extremely uh, inclusive and meaning, you know, basically exclusive in the sense that you guys can't get in, but it's only for this certain group. If it's very specific means, very, you got to get in this way. It, the reality is that is exactly what it is. God is predetermined. This is the way that you will have a relationship with me. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from a person of Jesus Christ. And if that sits uneasy with you, or if you don't like that, that really doesn't change the reality that that's the truth of God's word. And how is it God can be so callous to determine one way to him? I mean, that's not very fair. But as we've said, the word of God makes it very clear that it's his heaven and he gets to decide who gets in. And the reality is, among all the religions of the world, all the belief systems and ways that people try to get to God, do you realize that in Christianity it's open to more people than any other religion or belief system? See, in other religions you have to jump through all these hoops. You have to do all these prayers, take all these rituals, and do all these things, and hope and pray that maybe at the end of your life you'll get to heaven. Maybe if you've been good enough, you'll be reincarnated enough times over that then you'll reach nirvana or heaven. If you do these seven things and pray these seven times and do this and do this, maybe you'll get there. Do you realize in Christianity it's the most open invitation to a relationship with God through Christ that anyone, for whosoever, shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Not by doing this or that religious thing or jumping through this hoop or doing that thing, but just by solely trusting in Jesus Christ. It's such an amazing open invitation that literally anyone can do it. Anyone can choose Christ. But the reality is to choose Christ is extremely difficult. It's an easy and and simple invitation, but accepting Christ is extremely difficult. Because it requires us to take a step back, to lay our self-righteousness and our pride and our arrogance and to lay it bare before God and say, I need you. I cannot do this on my own. See, it's, it's actually extremely humbling to receive Christ. So while the invitation is easy to understand, receiving this invitation is exact, actually extremely difficult for many, many people. Because we don't like giving up control. We don't like laying bare before God. We don't like surrendering and saying, God, I need you because I can't do this on my own. We want to do it in our own accord. And the gospel, the true gospel, the only gospel says you can't come in your own merit. You can't come by being good enough. You got to come through Christ. And I personally, as I said last week, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that because if I can't earn it to get it, that means I can do nothing to lose it. If he saves me and he keeps me and he sustains me, 
then anything I do could not separate that relationship. Then isn't that what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God? And this love is unique. It's not the love, the same type of love we find in John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loves all of us, right? Does God love the world? You guys can feel free to shout out. That's an easy one. Yes. He loves the world. Does he condone sin? No. Will there be a consequence for sin? Absolutely. See, the consequence is either your sin is paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he suffered for you. You feel like sometimes, well, I get away with something. It's not fair. No, no, no. The grace you've been extended costs Jesus his life. But the other punishment for sin is if you choose to pay for your own sin. I mean, God will let you. But that's eternal separation from him, from him in a place called hell. You see, God says there's going to be a consequence. And the consequence doesn't negate his love. He loves the world. And he loves the world so much he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever, as I've already said, believes on him can be saved. But Romans 8, when it talks about nothing separating us from the love of God, that's a different aspect of love. The love that God has for the world is a general love. He loves the world because it's his creation. But the Romans 8 love is a a father-son, a father-daughter love. It's a family love. It's a bond. It's God saying, in Christ, I love you and I will never let you go. I will never forsake you. You are mine and I am yours. Apart from anything you do or don't do, you are mine. You see, the love that God has for the world offers the gospel. The love in Romans 8 that he says you cannot be separated from is a love specifically given to those in Christ who have received Christ. If you've never really studied that chapter, I encourage you to do so. It's such a good, encouraging chapter. We've been given the Spirit of God as a symbol, as a sealing of our relationship with him. If you know Christ, you have the Spirit. If you don't know Christ, you don't have the Spirit. And you see, the general love that he has for the world, we can be separated from that. That's exactly what hell is. It's a separation from the presence of God. We're cast away from his presence. But the love in Romans 8, we can never be separated from. And it's only available through Christ. And we unpacked the true gospel last week in Galatians 1. We ended last week talking about all that God was able to do through the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And if you missed last week, go back. I kind of went through all the introduction stuff and explained who receives this letter, the date, all of those things, the purpose of the letter. So I encourage you to check that out. But we ended talking about the Apostle Paul and all that God was able to do through him and, and all the things he did in ministry. And yet, we acknowledge that even though Paul was used greatly by God, he had a lot of limitations, humanly speaking. I want to, we're not going to turn there, but I want to read this verse as kind of a follow-up to the end of last week, and then we'll dive into Galatians 2 in just a moment. But I want you to think about all that Paul did, all that Paul ministered to, and, and what he did in his ministry as far as preaching the gospel and writing the word of God and being this great apostle chosen by Christ directly, spent three years training with Jesus, spent time with the apostles, being affirmed by the church, affirmed by the apostles. 2 Corinthians 10.10, you can jot it down for notes, says this. For his letters, say they, this is what the pop culture, the, the community is saying about Paul. Those outside of the church are saying this. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. So the letters Paul writes are weighty and powerful. I love that word weighty. 
I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think of something with, with substance, right? There's weight to it. There's, there's fruit to it. There's something purposeful in it. The words that he writes are weighty and powerful, which shouldn't surprise us because what is he writing? These letters are what? They're the word of God. And so why are the letters of Paul so weighty and powerful? Because of the apostle Paul? No, because it's God's spirit working through Paul. And that's why when they read the word of God, they are, they are shocked by the contradiction that they find. That his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now that word contemptible means to make of no account, despise utterly, or he spoke as a nobody. You see, when Paul would be preaching to crowds, and man, he had some great moments. He'd go to the synagogues and he would debate the Jewish leaders and teachers. Then he would go to the marketplace and he would preach in the streets and people would just be astounded at his teaching. He'd go to the religious gatherings and he would question and he would challenge and he would debate. And they would listen to his letters that he would write and things that were being read of him. And they would be blown away because they would say, but man, when you look at him, he's not much to look at. He's not real impressive. When he speaks, he speaks as a nobody. Like, in fact, when he speaks, we want to make it of no account because he's a nobody. He had all these limitations, all these weaknesses. But the reality is, Paul was a great example of someone God can use. He was not impressive in his stature. He was not an eloquent eloquent speaker. He had a physical issue with his eyes, many believe. Some say that his eye sickness or disease or whatever caused him to have bad vision. Sometimes they would say, I've read in some commentaries where his eyes would kind of ooze fluid. This is why many believe that he had a hard time writing his own letters. And so the book of Romans was written by a scribe. Paul kind of recited the words and the man would write the words down. This is why in some letters, Paul says, I write this with my own hand. That's a huge affirmation to that church to say, this is so important. I took the time and the diligent effort to write this with my own hand. All these limitations, all these things that he was seen as a bad speaker, not impressive. When he walked into a room, nobody was blown away. Nobody was like, wow, look at that guy. Even when he spoke, they mocked him. They called him the babbler because he didn't speak very well. Kind of reminds me of this guy named Moses in the Old Testament who said, God, I can't do what you're calling me to do. I can't even speak clearly. And I love God's response. Moses, who made your mouth? Hey, Moses, who created you? You notice, notice that God gives Moses a helper, but then Moses doesn't need him because he trusts in God and God moves amazingly. As we journey through this letter of Galatians, my prayer is that we will not only discover the power of the true gospel, but that we will realize the freedom it brings into our lives. I'm praying that you and I will stop looking at our limitations, stop looking at what we can't do, placed on us by ourselves or by others. And look instead to the power of Christ. And not just the power of Christ out here, but the power of Christ in you. That in you, there is the power of Christ. And God desires to move in and through you in a way that will literally change not only your world, but the world around you. That we would live unto his glory. Why? Because Galatians chapter 1, and in the first chapter there, we talked about the verse that says that he died for us. So let's dive into chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in the first verse, verse 1. 
If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, that's page 820. So there are some Bibles there in the seats. If you want to just turn to page 820, I believe that'll take you right there. But Galatians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So that gospel is the true gospel. It's the same gospel he's always preached. But privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment here, but I want to talk about this idea that Paul had such a desire for the believers to walk and live in freedom that he was willing to fight for it. And he was willing to fight and risk his very life to defend the freedom that comes in the gospel. Let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds to what he has for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, I pray that you give me the ability to say what I need to say is what you've led me to write here in this message. Lord, I pray that I would not get in your way, but that you would speak as only you can to the hearts of your people. Spirit, we pray that you would move freely among us, that we'd be open and and ready to receive what you have for us, but also willing to make decisions. Lord, if we need to make some changes in our lives, if we need to confess some things, repent of some things, turn from some things, I pray that you would move freely in your convicting way to encourage, challenge, and strengthen us. Lord God, we could not do what you've called us to do without you. You are the vine, and we are the branches. And if we don't abide in you, apart from you, we can do nothing. It's not we can do some things. We can do nothing on our own. We need to abide in you. And so I pray that you'd help us to remove, as best we can by our own ability, anything that's in the way of our relationship with you. Father, thank you for the true gospel that sets us free. Not just free from death and hell, but free in this life to live for you free from the desires to live in the flesh, to conform to the world around us, but to trust in you and to live for you. And Father, help us to defend our freedom in Christ. Not so much even against others, although at times that will come, but against ourselves, against the enemy. When our flesh and Satan wants to remind us of our past sins, that we could never live and walk in Christ because of who we used to be. Father, I pray that when that temptation comes, that we would reject those lies, focus in on the truth of who you are, and Lord, maybe take a moment and remind Satan of his future. That he can tempt now, but Lord, one day will come and he will be cast into the lake of fire. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning. I know that this morning, Lord, uh, just waking up and getting around, if anyone here is like me, Lord, this morning our minds are a little bit kind of groggy, We're still kind of getting going, so I pray that you'd help me not to get in your way again, Lord, but to speak clearly, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So in this chapter, we're going to find out that Paul, again, is going to defend the freedom we have in Christ. Now, what kind of freedom is this? Because again, this is something that gets preached a lot in churches. This is not a freedom to sin that grace may abound. There are some that teach that because of grace, you can just do whatever you want, wherever you want, and you're fine. There's no issues because, well, grace. Sin as much as you want, it's fine, whatever. Some have even taught and believed that because of grace and because of the gospel, there is no such thing as conviction of sin from the Spirit of God. 
I had a gentleman that was a believer for many, many years tell me that the Spirit of God does not convict believers of sin because God doesn't see our sin, so therefore there's no conviction. And I asked this person, well, what happens if I, as a believer, choose to make a sinful decision? What does the Spirit of God do? And he said, that's impossible. You can't make a sinful decision as a believer. God doesn't see it. It's all forgiven under the blood. Now, it's, it goes without saying that this person lived a life that was definitely one filled with questionable decisions. Because why do we do that? Why do we hope that's true, that belief system? Because, man, that sounds good, don't it? I can do whatever I want and still go to heaven and be fine. This is a great deal. I'm going to sacrifice nothing. I'm going to surrender nothing. I can sin as much as I want and just go, mm, grace, and I'm covered. And the reality is this. In Christ, when we sin, we are forgiven. Amen? We are forgiven. Praise God that's true. Because if I had to pay for one sin, I'm paying for all my sin. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we pay for. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. You don't get to cover some of your sin and pay for some of your sin. That's not how it works. We either pay for all of it or we don't pay for any of it and we trust in Christ. So we are forgiven when we sin as a believer because of grace. But Paul's very adamant to encourage us to have the right mindset. That, listen, we don't sin ahead of time planning to use grace later. Do you sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The Bible actually suggests if you can sin without conviction, that doesn't mean you're a really mature believer. That most likely means you're not even saved. Not my words, his words. If First John chapter 3, if we can sin habitually without conviction and a call to repentance, the Bible says you're most likely not a follower of God, you're a child of Satan. His words. So what is this freedom that we have? What kind of freedom do we have in Christ? Well, it's a freedom to live for him. It's a freedom to enjoy the relationship. We're free to live and move in Christ apart from religious ritual. I don't have to do these things to keep God happy with me or to make Jesus keep loving me. I am in Christ. He keeps me and we are free. So I don't need to live in fear. You see, I truly think the opposite of freedom is fear. Because what is fear? Fear is just bondage. When I'm fearful, I'm in bondage. And I do this to myself, by the way. Last week, we talked about in our Not Forsaken series that we're doing on Sunday nights. We were talking about our image of God as a father. And what kind of image do we have of God? And if you've missed the last two weeks, don't worry about it. You can come tonight. We'd love to have you. But we talked about this image of God. And what kind of image do you have of God? Is he a a performance God where he keeps track, checking the boxes? Is he an elderly God with a long beard and a walker, kind of docile and weak? I love what Louis Giglio says. He's always got a piece of candy in his pocket. You know, the hard candies with the wrappers that are really loud in church when you try to open them. And everyone's looking at you because you're doing it really loud. Some of y'all didn't grow up in church. You don't know. And I can say this because my mom, God bless her. When she started coming to church here, she always had this, well, first she had a giant purse. I don't know what she kept in the thing. It was like 45 pounds. I don't know how she carried it around. But she sat in the very back, right about where Zach's sitting, actually. And I could always tell when she was getting a piece of candy out. (laughs) Come on. And then, of course, you know what happens. Once you get a piece of candy out, what do the people next to you want? And they're whispering like they're being really quiet. Nobody, everybody knows what you're doing. Just give the candy. Let's go. 
So this image of God, what do we think of God when we think of him? And I I really think a lot of believers that are in Christ see God as this God that's just keeping track and just checking the boxes. Oh, that was good. Oh, that wasn't very good. And it's this performance tracking God. And what that leads to is not living in freedom in the presence of that God. It leads to fear in the presence of that God. We just hope we do enough to not get struck down. Is that freedom? Who's really going for candy right now? That's just amazing. I knew it should have been. Yeah, Wesley. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah. He was like, I could have something that makes noise because this performance tracking God. I mean, do you really, I want you to stop for a second and think about this. Do you really live, you don't need to answer out loud, but just between you and God. Do you live every day of your Christian life in complete freedom before God? Or do you have some fears? Do you feel not good enough as a believer? God, I'm just, I got to just do more. I got to be better because I just want to make you happy with me. And I'm not saying we don't live to please God. Of course, we should live and desire to please him. But not in fear that he'd keep loving me, but in freedom because he's already loved me. He's already accepted me. And Paul is going to defend this freedom in some pretty serious ways. So the first thing we're going to see here, and again, like last week, we are going to read the whole chapter, Lord willing. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Or I'm sorry, not 1, 3 through 10 because we already read the first two verses. So we're going to read this together. And then we'll give you some more background on this. Paul is defending our freedom in Christ in two ways. Look at verse 3. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And that because of false brethren, unanswers, or unaware, sorry, brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And there's that comparison. There's a liberty. Liberty is just a word for freedom. We're free in Christ, not to give into sin, right? It's not a license to sin, but to enjoy the presence we have with God, the relationship. He says, there were those who came in who desired to kind of corrupt this liberty. And they wanted to bring us into bondage. And I would argue bondage is just fear. Verse five, to whom we gave place by subjection No, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But counterwise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, and the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mightily in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Now, this sounds to our ears kind of interesting, different, unique. A lot of terms in there we don't really maybe follow because of cultural things. But I want to give you some background on what's happening here. So the first thing that Paul does is he defends our freedom in Christ against a group called the Judaizers. And he does this at what's called the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. Now, we mentioned it before, and we'll unpack that a little more too. 
But in chapter 1, we said there were these false teachers that came in and began to teach things contrary to the gospel. Remember, these are the ones that preached another gospel that wasn't the same of a same kind, but a different kind of gospel. Their teaching was mixing the grace and the law. This group was known, again, as the Judaizers, a group that believed that someone wasn't truly saved unless they, in essence, became a Jew first through circumcision. Became a Jew first by keeping the law through outward ritual. Then, now they can be saved. This chapter of Galatians, and if you're taking notes, unfortunately, we don't have time to turn there and read the whole section, but I encourage you to write it down. This chapter of Galatians should be taken in context of Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. So Galatians 2, maybe this week, as you're rereading this at home, read Acts 15 as well. And you're going to see a lot of what Paul's talking about in Galatians 2 is going to match up with Acts 15. So Acts 15 is where we this council happened, this Jerusalem council, that was convened to discuss this issue of the need for anything in addition to Jesus alone. So Paul's writing to the church of Galatia. These false teachers have come to Galatia, the region there, and they're teaching this idea that you got to mix law and grace. And a few years before this, Paul, the same thing was happening. And so Paul went up to Jerusalem and there was a council that was convened. In Acts 15, that's what you're reading about. And in Acts 15, the same discussion was kind of unfolding. What does it really take to be saved? What does it really mean to be a Christian, to trust in Christ? Can these non-Jewish heathens, as they would have been seen in that culture, by the way, that's us. So you can go home today and say the pastor called you a heathen and it's accurate. The same group then that received the gospel was getting saved. And some of the Jews and that were even saved Jews in Jerusalem were going, we don't really know if they're really saved. We don't really like this idea that they're Gentiles coming to Christ. And so they were teaching these false teachings. And so Paul gets together with Barnabas and Titus and they go to the Jerusalem council and they kind of talk this whole thing out. This is also the first known church council in the history of the church. And this happens in Jerusalem because this is where Peter, we talked about him before, James, this would be the brother of Jesus, and John are considered pillars of the church. So these apostles are in Jerusalem, and they're the pillars of the church. In the early church, they were looked to as they were the authority. They walked with Jesus. So where do they go for clarity on what it means to be a follower of Christ? Let's go back to Jerusalem, and let's talk to the pillars of the faith. Again, remember, where did Peter go or Paul go after he spent his three years out in the wilderness? He went and saw the apostles, namely Peter, and he wanted to speak with him and spend time with him so that the revelation that Christ gave Paul was affirmed. So here we see in this Acts 15, and again, we don't have time to turn there, but in Acts 15, they have this long discussion, this kind of back and forth. Peter speaks, different individuals speak, and then there's a conclusion so Paul's defending the freedom in Christ in this council, which he's kind of recounting here for Galatians 2. So what is the conclusion of this council's decision? In Acts chapter 15 and verse 19, we read of James and his concluding point. He says this, Wherefore my sentence is, my decision is this, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. 
Another translation says it this way. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James stands after all this discussion and he says, listen, we have one call. We need to make it not easy per se, because as I said, it's an easy invitation, but a difficult call. But we need to remove any difficulties, any extra weights from these Gentiles and the path that they're taking to get to God. We need to make it a a path that is understandable, a path that is biblical and direct so that they understand how to know Christ personally. And so James's decision is these false teachers are just that, false teachers. They're adding weights. They're adding things to this process, and it's not right. As we even said last week, I'm blown away. Within approximately 20 years of Jesus ascending and leaving the earth, there's already the debate about how do we even know that we're saved. Within 20 years, these churches are already thinking, well, we got to do this and we got to do that. And they had to go to this council and have this decision made. This wasn't of all the church leaders. This was of the apostles and they made this decision. So what does it mean to make it difficult? When James says we should not make it difficult for these Gentiles to come to Christ. This doesn't mean we do not talk about the weight and reality of sin and its consequences. It's a scary thing that even in evangelical Bible preaching churches, And I don't care what's on the sign. We got all kinds of churches that have different names on the sign. But Bible preaching churches that refuse to talk about sin, that refuse to talk about hell. I don't understand how we can preach Jesus and lead someone to Christ who is the Savior because we've sinned and he's saving us from hell. I don't know how we communicate the gospel without at least bringing those things up at some point. I'm not talking about beating people down with their sin, right? Uh, Some of you grew up in churches where you got saved because you were just terrified. Like not by hell, but by the guy up on the stage. Like you were like, that man scares me. Some of you grew up in environments like that. I'm not talking about browbeating people. Because again, we don't get saved out of fear. We receive Christ out of love. Because we know he loved us as a heavenly father. Now, there should be a healthy concern and fear of what will happen to us apart from Christ. But I'm always blown away that even churches will preach the gospel without bringing up sin. And they'll say, because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to scare them away. Jesus offended people every day. You want to talk about offense? He's with a group of Jews who can't eat bacon can't eat certain things that have been strangled certain ways, the blood and all that. They got to be super specific to what they eat. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no presence in the kingdom. You can't get in unless you do that. He told a bunch of Jewish people who have strict dietary laws, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Now we know what was he referring to? The communion, the Lord's supper, the new covenant, the new Testament. But those Jews took that and said, that's offensive to our ears. And they left. Now, let me just ask you for a second. Do you think Jesus being the son of God, God himself knew what they would do? Do you think Jesus could have said it differently and not offended them so openly? He could have said any number of things. So why did he say it so pointedly? Because he wanted them to be challenged in their hearts, to look beyond their understanding and to say, wait a minute, I need to know more. What are you talking about? 
I want to know more, not just be offended and leave. And so listen, if you're preaching Christ to someone, you're sharing Christ with someone at work or at school, and they look offended, they get offended, it's because they're offended, because they're in their sin, and they don't like to admit that they're sinful and in need of a Savior. And it's the same thing that happens to you and I when we receive Christ. When you heard that you were a sinner on your way for hell, I don't think you were like, yeah, that's awesome. No, you probably got defensive. Who are you to tell me that? You don't know me. I'm not that bad of a person. I do good things. And we start justifying our sin because we're offended that someone else would dare to tell us that we have the problem. And I'm so thankful that God's word and that Jesus Christ was loving enough to tell us the truth. And so listen, as you're preaching Christ, I'm not talking about beating them up with their sin. I'm talking about admitting the reality of what happens if we die in our sin. And if someone gets offended, they get offended. I'd much rather they get offended and receive Christ than be happy and content and die in their sin. Well, you know what? They felt really welcomed around me. Awesome. They're going to burn. Every, every minute, people are dying and spending an eternity in hell. And they sat in churches that could have preached the gospel, but because they wanted them to come back next week and put a check in the plate, they didn't want to offend them because the crowd might get smaller. And this is why Paul says, listen, here's the truth of it. There's only one gospel. We can't change it. Not only do we make it difficult, or rather not make it difficult, by acknowledging sin and consequences, we make it difficult. That looks like when you put extra things in the way of Christ. Church tradition, legalism, what you wear to church, whether you go to the movies or not. See, those are the things that traditionally the church has put in the way of unbelievers that make it difficult. Preaching truth about sin and consequences is not making it difficult. Also, we don't create an easier path by refusing to talk about biblical morals or standards. We never compromise biblical morals or standards just so somebody will give a, quote, confession and a conversion. We share the truth of the devotion to Christ. So it's not removing biblical truth. It's not removing sin and consequence. It means I'm not going to add anything apart from what the Bible says to their shoulders. Notice also, as you're going to study it out this week, in Acts 15, when James speaks, it's a decision that is unanimous among the apostles. In Acts 15, nobody stood up and said, whoa, 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 that's not true. Hold on, that's not right. They just agree as one that the gospel is simple. It is faith in Christ alone. You see, no one contradicted James because the decision was unanimous. But this did not stop, as we see in the book of Galatians, these teachers from continuing to follow Paul. See, what most people think is as Paul would go to a new region, these Judaizers would follow him. And as he's preaching the gospel, they would start preaching their, their stuff and their truth. Or he would establish a church and he would leave, and they'd come in behind and start corrupting the teaching, trying to pervert the gospel, lead these new believers into heresy. And the truth is we see throughout all of church history this continual cycle that we know the true gospel, but yet there are those who will try to teach something contrary. And it happens generation after generation after generation. It is clear that the means for salvation are Jesus alone. 
And yet countless churches or preachers or priests or popes or any other title you want to put out there add in this or that religious ritual that now seals the forgiveness of sins. It's no longer just Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus something. Jesus plus church membership. Jesus plus good behavior. Jesus plus confession. Jesus plus uh, confirmation. Jesus plus Lord's Supper. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus whatever. Paul says there's one gospel. There's not many. It is worth noting that these Judaizers have mixed themselves into the church. And actually, they are influential in the church in a way that people are listening to them. This reminds me of the book of Jude, where the false teachers have crept in unawares. Which, something else always comes to mind when I read that out loud. I won't say it. I'll let your imagination run with that. Crept in unawares. That should sound like something else to you. If it doesn't, that's just my mind. I apologize. If you're like, what are you talking about? See me after service. But these false teachers, they came in unaware. What does that mean? They came in and people weren't even aware. They weren't even realizing their false teaching. Why? Because in the beginning, they said all the right stuff. In the beginning, they said all the right things. They, they preached all the right things. They taught all the right things. They said all the right things. And as once time went on and they got influential, that means they got a level of people listening to them. Now they started corrupting that teaching. This is why believer, we individually have to be on guard. In the same way Paul was willing to defend the freedom of Christ by traveling to Jerusalem and speaking out on behalf of all of these Gentiles that he's been seeing come to Christ. He says, no, no, you're not going to add weights to them. I know them. I know they're saved. By the way, he brings Titus with him. If you didn't catch that in Galatians 2, he brings a Gentile saved individual with him. And I love it. It's almost like he brings Titus like exhibit A. Like, here you go. Here's one of these men that you say aren't really saved. Go ahead. Test him. Look at him. Try him. And they saw the spirit of God in Titus and they realized, man, this man knows Christ. But he's not circumcised. He's not a Jew. So how can that be? Unless God saves everyone apart from being a respecter of persons if they confess Christ. You see, these false teachers came in and I want to encourage you, be on guard. Because you're going to hear teaching in your day-to-day life. You're going to hear sermons. You're going to read articles. You're going to see interviews. And I want you to be be discerning. Man, does this ring true with the gospel that I've heard? And I'll tell you this too. Just because a teaching has been in the church a long time doesn't mean it's a biblical teaching. I heard a speaker say one time, history is not a hermeneutic. And all that means is when we define and translate and interpret scripture... History is not one of the defining things we use to figure out what's being talked about. We take history into context of what's going on around it. But what the speaker meant was just because a teaching has been in the church for a long time doesn't necessarily mean it's biblical. There's false teaching that crept into the church in the third and fourth and fifth century that still somehow is in the church today. And yet it's not in the Bible. It's not in the book. And yet it's in there. It's in the teachings. And so just because something's been in the church a long time doesn't make it biblical. And so we need to defend the freedom we have in Christ. This, again, is why it is absolutely vital. The way we define salvation is not through any other lens but the lens of God's word. Paul was passionate about defending the freedom in God's one true gospel. And we're going to see, and I'm gonna, we're going to pause here. 
I know I said we'd go through chapter 2, but we're, I really don't want to push it in just to kind of get it in time. So we're going to pause and we're going to come back to it next week. But in the next part of this chapter, and you can read it for yourself, Paul didn't just go to Jerusalem and defend the freedom in Christ against these false teachers. He's actually going to stand and defend this gospel and the freedom we have against the apostle Peter. And we're going to find out that even Peter, this great, by the way, what did he call him just a few verses ago? A pillar in the church. He's going to tell us that even Peter stumbled. Even Peter got his eyes off the true gospel. And it's not that Paul's perfect. We're going to find out Paul got his eyes off the true gospel, didn't he? There's a story about John, Mark, and Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas wants to take John, Mark. And we kind of recounted this recently. And as that happens, Paul and Barnabas get into this fight because Paul doesn't want to take John, Mark because he's going to quit again. Where's the grace and love in the gospel there? Where's the forgiveness there? You see, even Paul, who says, I'm going to defend this freedom because he was in his flesh and in his emotions, he made a decision that was not reflecting of the true gospel. And so not only do we need to guard against others that might speak against the true freedom we have in Christ, we need to be guarded against our own flesh. Not just leading us into fear, thinking God's up there just checking boxes, but leading us into this idea that somehow God's grace is for me, but could never be for them. I mean, our culture today, there's so much anger in our world, in our nation. And sometimes people of different beliefs or backgrounds or opinions, man, in an effort to speak, quote, truth, we've obliterated them. And there's no truth in love. And we forget the grace that we received when we were wretched sinners. They need just as desperately. But you know what? I don't agree with their political opinion, so I'm just going to let them have it. I don't agree with what they just said, so I'm going to unload on them. Because obviously I'm right and they're wrong. And we need to be so guarded as a church and as individuals that the same grace that we have received is the grace that we preach and the grace we extend. Because that's the true gospel. And as Paul's going to show us in just a few verses in chapter 2, he was even willing to defend it against Peter. So I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation and the band's going to come in just a moment. And I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And I'm going to ask you, I know you're taking notes. I see some of you jotting some things down. Finish that sentence and just put, put everything aside for a moment. Put the word of God aside for a second. Put the notebook aside for a second. And I want to just encourage you to really genuinely spend some time with him this morning. To just key in on a couple key applications. And I want to try to give you just a couple thoughts. And obviously, God's going to be reminding you and leading you in things that I'm not even going to speak about. And that's fine. If his spirit is leading you in one way, you need to respond to that. But maybe an application this morning would be, you've got some limitations in your life. You've got some things that you feel as though could hinder what God would do in your life. You've got some, some things in your past that you think still are just there, and God would never use someone like you who did what you did. Maybe some of you are here today, and you have literally physical limitations. You think, well, I'm older. I can't really do what I used to do physically. God can use you. You might not be able to do the physical things you're able to do, but do you realize the power of someone praying and just beseeching God and and interceding for someone else? I mean, if you have breath in your lungs, you can pray. And it's not the least you can do, it's the most you can do. So maybe you're here and you feel limited by something, maybe past, present, physical things. 
Whatever it is, maybe you've been telling yourself the lie that God can never use someone like you. Man, study the word of God and you will find story after story after story of individuals that nobody would have chosen. Nobody would have used. Situations that never could have produced something good. And yet God was involved and brought about fruitful, blessed outcomes. And so maybe you're sitting there today, you're like, I don't know. No, I want to encourage you to do something. We're going to pray in just a moment. We're going to have an invitation. If you're feeling that weight of God, I'm not good enough. I could never do it. I'm going to encourage you to get up, come up here, bend a knee and say, God, these are my limitations. I've let them stop me for too long. I'm done. I want your will. I want your will. Maybe you're here today and you've been living a life of sin and you think it's fine because it's grace. You've been doing whatever you want and you just throw that grace card out there. Well, God will love me. God will forgive me. Maybe you'd come this morning and say, God, if you know him as your savior, you would say, Lord, forgive me for this. Get my heart and my mind on track with you. Help me to surrender these things, Lord, that I would desire to please you, not to keep the salvation that you've given me, but to enjoy the salvation you've been given, you've been given me, that I can live in freedom. Maybe you grew up in a church that was very legalistic and you don't know what it means to live in freedom. You're still thinking of God as that performance checker. Maybe you would come and say, Lord, help me to enjoy the relationship, to live free. Not to give myself to sin, but to give myself fully to you and enjoy every moment out of bondage because you've set me free. Whoever the sun sets free is free indeed, genuinely free. So whatever God is doing, would you respond this morning? And lastly, if you don't know Christ, maybe you've gone to church your whole life, I don't know. Maybe you've heard the gospel 15, 20 times. But if you were honest with yourself right now, you would be open enough before God to say, God, I've, I've, I've gone to church, I've played the part, but I don't know you. Like your, your word is not a desire of mine. I don't desire to be in your word. I don't desire to be with the church. I don't desire to grow in you. Lord, I, I prayed this prayer when I was a kid, but, but the reality is I... I just kind of did it because everyone else was doing it. I did it because everybody else raised their hand or I did it because I felt guilty or I felt bad. But maybe you heard this morning and you would say, Lord, I just need you. Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you save me and help me to live for you by your grace? Whatever God is doing in these areas, would you respond as he leads? Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, I know that the message this morning was a little weightier than maybe other messages, Lord. And I, I thank you for that. I thank you for truths that we need to hear and be reminded of. That because, Father, we can all be tempted to fall into bondage and fear, thinking it's what we do, thinking there's, in practicality, another gospel. Father, there are some in this room right now that are limited in some ways in their own minds. Lord, maybe they are physically limited. They can't do what they used to do. But I pray that that would help us, that we would help us, you'd help us to know rather, Lord, that, that none of that can stop you. You're an unstoppable God. And you use imperfect earthen vessels, clay jars that you call us in Scripture, ordinary. But Father, when the gospel is in us, by the working of the Spirit, we become an extraordinary vessel, a vessel of honor that our words and our actions and our, our thoughts can glorify you. 
Father, I know there are some in this room that know you as their Savior, but have made decisions to give in to sin. Maybe some would say they're just little things. Maybe somebody would say they're big things. I pray that they would confess those things, repent of them, realize your grace is for them, not against them, and you can restore them. Father, may you work in all these areas of application we've talked about, that you would be glorified. And we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Would you respond as the Lord leads? Whatever it is that God is leading, would you just come and pray? Maybe there in your seats or here at the altar. Would you enjoy the relationship and ask God to help you to live in that freedom this morning as we sing?